We're moving into the final chapter of Nehemiah this morning. So um, we're, we're kind of coming down to the home stretch. So including, including today, we have five sermons remaining uh, out of this book. So hopefully you'll stick with it till the end. Um, God's taught me a few things along the way. Hopefully he's taught you some as well. And then here in the next few weeks, I'll explain to you uh, where we're going next. But we're not there yet. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. Um, obviously, last week we finished up chapter 12 uh, and, and saw that time of dedication of the walls and the gates. And, and the thing about Nehemiah is it's been interesting. The story has just kind of been building and it's kind of good thing after good thing. And it's, 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 it's leading up and, and, and building up to this exciting point that, you know, they've kind of fought through all this opposition and built the walls and, and, the, and the gates. They completed those in chapter 6, and then they committed to the work of rebuilding the community and the culture. And in chapter 7, they heard and read and expounded upon the Word of God in, in chapter 8, and the people repented in chapter 9 and made a promise to live by the law of God in chapter 10. They brought back people into Jerusalem and really got to work in earnest on reestablishing their culture and, and community in chapter 11. And then they took the time out, what we saw the last couple weeks, to dedicate the walls and the gates and to give thanks to the Lord for all he had done in and through them in chapter 12. And then comes chapter 13. <laughs> and it's a, I'll be honest, it's kind of a letdown. If you're someone that likes stories with happy endings, you're not gonna love chapter 13. Now, on the other side, if you're someone who likes some righteous anger and some you know, good old-fashioned tail whipping, then you, know, you might enjoy some aspects <laughs> of chapter 13. But if that's, not like, if that's not you, you're probably gonna feel like Nehemiah should have quit with the great celebration and the dedication of the rebuilt walls and gates recorded in chapter 12. He should have just wrapped it up there you know, and rode off into the sunset because this closing chapter is really the story of a backward slide in the, on the part of the children of Israel. And that, that gives us the theme for the final chapter, and that's regression. The theme that we're going to see in the final chapter, this chapter 13, is regression because they move backwards. And listen, the fact is that is... That's real life sometimes. The Bible deals with real life. The Bible didn't end in chapter 12 because it deals with real life. The Bible is truth. And this isn't the only example in the Bible where it seems like, you know, if we were writing the story, maybe we would have stopped at a chapter earlier. You know, Jonah is another good example of that. It has four chapters, but all the good stuff happens in chapter 3. You know, Jonah finally preaches to the, to the Ninevites. They repent. They turned to the Lord, and so God repents of the evil he was going to bring upon them, and, and they all, you know, get, get saved, and, and everything is awesome, and then that's how chapter 3 ends, but then there's a chapter 4, and in chapter 4, we just see Jonah pout and be upset that the Assyrians of, of Nineveh turned to the Lord. You know, he's mad about it, but that's real life. Sometimes, and the Bible deals with real life, and real life has ups, and it, it, maybe we're trending up sometimes, and then real life has times of, of downward turns. And sometimes we're not headed in the same direction that we were at one time. Uh, General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, he once said this to a group of new officers. He said, I want you young men 
always to bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. That's a a great quote and it's a great analogy of what we're going to find with the children of Israel in our passage this morning. Nehemiah discovers that the fire of devotion had gone out in Jerusalem. Now what we're going to learn is that it was all because of a compromise. A compromise with the very ones who were fighting against the building project from its onset. And it's, a, it's, it's really a sad thing to consider and to read about. After all that God had accomplished in and through them, after there had been a renewed excitement to serve the Lord according to his word, after promises had been made and vows had been vowed, and now what we're going to find is that they're not following through on their end of those promises and those vows. And it brings about a crisis of faith in Jerusalem because the the Jews had already been warned of this, this particular situation. Moses told them in Deuteronomy 23, 21, that when thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it, for the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. And then Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, ruled over Israel in their glory days, said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, and thou shouldest vow and not pay. And so what happened, what happened here is the children of Israel, they put themselves in a, in a bad situation in a crisis situation, and and listen, compromise with the world will always bring about a crisis in faith. That's what we're gonna see, and that's what we're gonna study today. It's also the title of this message, The Crisis of Compromise. And there's some things we need to learn about compromise this morning and how God views it and, and how we can get out of it. And we especially need to learn it in the day and age in which we live where compromise, quite honestly, is around every corner. When we started this series, I told you how the days of Nehemiah compare to today. And that's certainly true in this area. Satan knows. He knows how to attack us. And he knows that if he can mingle in the world with you know, our brand of Christianity, that, that he's going to be successful in keeping us from truly glorifying God with our life. And I believe that this is our biggest risk today. And the truth is that I believe this is a war that our enemy is winning. And Satan has deployed a Trojan horse in Laodicea. And it's compromise. And it's not so much a complete departing of the faith. It's just an intermingling of the world and Christianity and God. It's it's having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. A little bit of God and a little bit of the world, and I just want to ride that fence, baby. While conveniently forgetting the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 24, that says, No man can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the children of Israel are going to learn that hard truth in our text this morning, and, and I hope we do too. So let's look at it together, Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to study the first nine verses this morning. And in verse chapter 1, we read, On that day, 
They read in the book of Moses and the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them, howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priest. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and understood the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come to you this morning needing to hear from you. Uh, we come this morning wanting to, 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 to give you worship, give you uh, thanksgiving, give you all that is due your name. And, and Lord, we, but, but we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your word in this time as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you do that. Lord, I pray that you speak to each and every one of us this morning. And I pray that you move me out of the way and that your word is lifted high and that you're glorified through it. And that you do a work that only you can do. And Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it is honoring to you, it's glorifying to you, and this entire service is a sweet savor to you, Lord. And we pray that you use it in, in the lives of this church and, and us individually. We thank you uh, for the time we have together, and we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, before we get into our points too deep this morning, I, I want to I set the stage for you because there's a couple things that I, I need to explain so we understand exactly what's happening. So stay with me here for just a couple minutes because what we see is that Nehemiah, well, by the time we get to chapter 13, it kind of seems like out of nowhere, but Nehemiah is back in Babylon. So this occurs sometime after the dedication of the wall. And, and you'll remember, if, if you've been with us this whole time, he was the cupbearer for the king of Persia, and he had obtained leave back there in, in chapters 1 and 2 to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall after he had heard the reports of the shambles that the city was in, and the wall in particular. But by Nehemiah 13, now he's back, presumably to his old position. We know that for verse 6. He said, but in all this time, when all this stuff was going on, was not I at Jerusalem? For in the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained, I leave of the king. So, so he, he's back in Babylon. He's presumably back to his old position. And he has to go to the king and say, listen, I know I've been gone for a while. I know it's gone for a while, but I got to go back. I got to go back. But listen, he couldn't have been gone that long. And that's the, that's the thing about this. He couldn't have been gone from Jerusalem that long because Nehemiah first started the rebuilding project in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah 2.1 tells us that, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not aforetime been sad in his presence. And this is when he goes to the king and asks to return to Jerusalem for the first time, and the, and the king says he can. So he, he, he starts in the 20th year of the king's reign. We know that he spent 12 years in Jerusalem. 
And we know that from Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. It says, Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year, even under the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, that is 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. So he was appointed governor, and he spent 12 years there in Jerusalem. But Nehemiah chapter 13, he's back in Babylon. But this is still in that 12th year. It was the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes' reign. We, we just read that in Nehemiah 13.6. So he couldn't have been back very long. And in this time, he has to return to fix the problems that had entered into Jerusalem. Now, if you read commentaries, they're, they're kind of all over the map on, on when this occurred. And it's it's sort of complicated by the phrase, on that day. Verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 13 starts, on that day. And you'll read a lot of people that says that's the day of the dedication of the walls. And they connect it to that same day. And, and to be honest, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I, I don't believe that to be the case at all. I don't think the dedication was 12 years after the wall was built. And I'll, I'll talk more about that and explain more why I think that later on. But the truth is, it is a little bit hard to know. I can just show you what the Bible has to say, and you can read into it what you want. But at the end of the day, I'm not really sure how much it matters. Because what does matter is while things started out on the right foot for the children of Israel, and they were on a good path, and they were on a good tra trajectory, at some point, things turned south. And they began to compromise, and now they're in a crisis. And if we are not careful... That same thing can happen to us, and, and that's the setup we need to bring us to our first point, which is the subtlety of compromise. We have to understand the subtlety of compromise. You see, something, compromise is something that can sneak up on you, especially if you don't have your guard up. And that's what happened here with the children of Israel Jerusalem. We see in verses 1 through 3 that they were intermarrying again. And Nehemiah hadn't been gone that long, and they're intermarrying with the Gentiles. And not just any Gentiles, but the Ammonites and the Moabites, the arch enemies of Israel that we've seen throughout this book. Look there again in verses 1 through 3. On that day they read in the book of Moses and the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them, Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Now, so they, they were back to where they were before. And they were intermarrying with the Ammonites and the Moabites in direct violation of the law, even down to the specificity of the Gentile nations. Because it says they read in the book of Moses and found written. And what they found was Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. That says, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation. Shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever? Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Baor of Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. So they found that passage. Well, I mean, that's pretty direct. That's difficult to argue against what God had told them. But not only that, in chapter 10, the Israelites, after that 
solemn time of rededication of their lives, took a vow that they would not do this very thing. And listen, they bound themselves with a curse and an oath to obey the commands of the law of God, including Deuteronomy chapter 23. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 10. Verses 28 through 30, and the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and understanding, there's, things are going great. They claved to their brethren, their nobles, and listened and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. And listen to verse 30, and that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land and take their daughters for our sons. And here we are at, at most, not quite 12 years removed from Nehemiah chapter 10 and much shorter time from Nehemiah leaving Jerusalem. And that covenant has already been broken. And compromise had set in because they had invited and let the world back in. And listen, this command of God with respect to intermarrying isn't very politically correct today. But even today, in a day and age of inclusion, God still expects some exclusion from his people. And it's because he knows what's best. And it's not about races, it's about what the people will do to draw us away from God. He knows what will happen when compromise starts because he knows the heart of man and he knows the heart of woman. And it's interesting because in Nehemiah 13.3, the Bible uses the term mixed multitude. And the word multitude means abundant, plenteous, much. And that's how compromise works. That's why it's so subtle. Because it starts with a little, but compromise is never satisfied with just having a little. It always wants more. And it always wants more in your life. And when you begin to compromise, it just seems like a little thing at the beginning. And maybe it is. But it's going to keep wanting more and more of your life. And while it may start slow, it's going to grow over time and you don't even know what's happening. And the mixed multitude will always cause trouble. You know, we talk sometimes about the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? We'll talk about all of their complaining and their crying and, and how they're eh, eh, a bunch of babies. You know, this, this, this 11 day journey that, you know, wasn't really 11, 11 days for a you know, whole nation of, of people, but this 11 day journey took, you know, took 40 years and you know, man, what, what in the world? You know, and of course, we would have been no different. Like, don't, don't think of yourself more highly uh, than them. Let me just get that straight for sure. But we complain about them. But, but listen, did you know that they weren't alone in the wilderness? They, they let some people come with them from Egypt. It wasn't only Israelites. In Exodus chapter 12, we learned that they let some in. So they're preparing to leave. So in, in verse 29, the, 
God comes and, and, and kills all the firstborn of, of, of the kids and the animals. And so Pharaoh finally says, let them go. And they're gathering stuff and they find that there are some Egyptians that are friendly to them. Moses gives them the orders to take off in verse 37. And look at this. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. But look very carefully at what verse 38 says. And a mixed multitude went up also with them. And the flocks and the herds and even very much cattle. It's the same phrase used in Nehemiah chapter 3 in the context of Gentiles. It's a mixed multitude. And it was people from Egypt. And listen, I'm, sh I'm sure they thought it was fine. I mean, these were nice people. Uh, they were good neighbors, I'm sure. What could go wrong? I mean, listen, we're, we're bringing them in with us. We're going to win them. Well, Numbers chapter 4 tells us what was wrong. Because it says, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And who was it that fell a-lusting and influenced the children of Israel? The mixed multitude. And this picture is for us very, something very important about the mixed multitude. And that is sustenance from the word of God is never enough. It's never enough for them. He said there is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And manna in the Bible is a picture of the word of God. And we won't take the time to, to do this, but we could go back to Exodus chapter 16 and show that to you very clearly. It is a clear picture of God's word. And that's not enough for them. They want what Egypt has too. They want what the world has to offer too. And listen, that describes the mixed multitude today as well. There are those within the church who have compromised with the world. And the word of God is not enough for them. And they want what the world has to offer too, because that looks good, and that tastes good, and that feels good. And it's creeped in everywhere. And we'll hold to certain standards in some places, but then in others we won't. And we'll gladly accept all that the world has to offer. I mean, uh, I see it more and more and more in, in counseling. You just see it all the time in counseling and people seeking the world's opinion. Or the opinion of Christians, but Christians who don't believe that the word of God is enough. And everything today, it's, it's therapeutic, and it's centered on how to make you happy and, and how you need to get the best out of you. I don't even know what that means, and I'm not kidding. I don't know what that statement means according to God's word. Listen, that is not God's way nor God's prescription. In fact, here's what God says about those who want to mix the world with the word. Right, And they want to kind of get the best of all of it. It's Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, listen, but not of me, and that cover with the covering, but not of my spirit, 
that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt, a picture of the world, and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust of the shadow of Egypt your confusion. Listen, you want to know why nothing makes sense today? You look at our world and it's confusion. Isaiah 30 verse 3 tells you exactly why. Because people want what the world has to offer. And they'll come to church and they'll hear that, but they don't believe this book is enough. And I got to get, I mean, surely, I mean, listen, it was written a long time ago. Surely it doesn't cover everything. It's, we have new problems today. And, and, and listen, the, the Bible doesn't talk about everything. And there's people that are really smart today. Listen, if they do not believe that God's word is enough, then you should not listen to them. This is it. I have 66 counselors. I don't need any others. Everything you need is here. So don't buy into it. And it's so subtle. And it sounds good. And the books that they write sound good until you begin to honestly and objectively line them up with what God's word says. And what you will find is that most of them are not good. And at the end of the day, and you don't even know it, but at the end of the day, it is the philosophy and the approach of Balaam. And you know what it's about? It's about money. And it's about breaking down the sufficiency of scripture. And that's, that's, that's the issue here. It should come as no surprise. That's what Nehemiah 13, 2 tells us. It's because of this guy named Balaam. And if you don't know about Balaam, he was a hireling prophet who tried to curse Israel. He had been hired by Balak, who was the king of the Moabites. And he hired him to curse him, and God wouldn't allow it to happen. And every time he turned, Balaam tried to curse him, and he turned into a blessing. But listen, Balaam finally figured it out. And he encouraged the Moabites to be neighborly and friendly and invite the Jews to share in their religious feasts that were full of idolatry and immorality. And it worked. And the mixed multitude worked again. But back to our point on the subtlety of compromise. You need to understand that all of this, this intermarrying, this mixing the world with the people of God, it didn't just happen overnight. And it didn't just happen within the homes of the family of Israel. It started in the temple. And it started with the leadership. Because the first three verses hit on the key kind of widespread problem, the widespread crisis that they were dealing with at the time. But it goes back to one incident that opened the door to this bigger compromise. And you find that incident in verses 4 and 5. And it starts with the key phrase. Look at verse 4. And before this, before all of this intermarrying, before it became a mixed multitude, something happened that set the stage. And here's what it was. Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the corn, the new wine and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priest. You see, Eliashib, the high priest, 
He takes a room that was set up for all the offerings that would go to those taking care of the temple, the priests and the porters and the singers. And this was meant to store all of the stuff that supported all of those that were taking care of the temple. And he gives it to Tobiah. You see, the thing that started this mess was that Eliashib let Tobiah and Ammonite move into the temple. Now, we're going to learn why later in the chapter, and I'll, and I'll save it for that. But this was the same Tobiah who outwardly and actively opposed the building of the wall. From the very beginning, the first mention of enemies in the book of Nehemiah is enemy 2.10, and it's Sanballat and Tobiah. It says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that they were going to rebuild the wall. It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And on throughout the rest of the time, Tobiah actively opposed to this project. And Eliashib, the priest, the high priest, lets him in. And listen, in fact, when, when Nehemiah took the time to list the workers of the wall in Nehemiah chapter 3, Eliashib's the first person mentioned. In Nehemiah 3.1, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even under the tower of Meah. They sanctified it under the tower of Hananiel. And, and listen, he was, at that time, he was a worker. He was in the middle of all of it, sanctifying and setting apart the gates and the towers. And this gives us another very important lesson about compromise. And that is your past does not guarantee your future. You see, just because you served the Lord yesterday doesn't mean you're going to tomorrow. Just because you're serving the Lord today doesn't guarantee that you will be serving him next week or next year. That is a decision that you have to make every day. And can I warn you that the world is calling Compromise is calling every day. And that call will never stop. And all the world wants you to do, at least to start, is just make a little room for it in your house. Just make a little room for it in this church. It's not going to ask for very much at the beginning. Now, again, like we already talked about, it's going to ask for more over time. But it's not going to ask for very much at the beginning. It's going to tell you you can leave the rest for God. It's okay. I just want this. I just want this room. And you can fill in whatever that room is in your life. But if you open that door, you're at risk for being an Eliashib. And it's going to eventually want more. And how many people do you know that fit that bill, that they were on fire for the Lord for a while and they were serving and they were excited and now they're gone and now they're not here. Let me tell you why that usually happens. It's because compromise calls and they answered. So don't rely on your past. You can't do that. Don't get complacent. Serve God today. Get up each morning and decide today. Choose you this day. 
whom you will serve. It's a choice you've got to make every day. The world's calling every single day. You can see that in, in, in Daniel chapter 1. When they were trying to get those Hebrew boys to take of the king's meat, of the, the king of the Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar. And said, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember the verse, but what kind of provision did they give him? A daily. A daily provision of the king's food and the king's wine. And Daniel and those guys wouldn't do it. And they stood strong. But listen, that just tells you the world is calling every single day. So, so why do you think we should carve some time away for the Lord every single day? It's up to you. It's up to you. And it's so subtle. And it's just one decision at a time. And the next thing you know, you look at where you're at and you're nowhere close to where you used to be. I remember the, the first time I ever went to the ocean. I was probably 13 or 14, and we went to California. Uh, we went to Los Angeles. The first time I'd seen the ocean, you know, I was, I was in awe, and, and I'm 13, 14-year-old, whatever. I don't, I don't even know any better. I don't know that, I, that the ocean's a dangerous thing. I just take out, run out into the ocean, and I wasn't scared. And I go, and I'm trying to go out as far as I can, and I'm messing around and, you know, playing out there, and, and I... I you know, out there, I don't even know, not that long, maybe a half an hour or something, and trying to get further. And then I, you know, I decide, well, maybe I'll make my way back to the beach. I turn around, and I start coming back, and I don't recognize anything. <laughs> like, ah, I'm like, wait a second. Those are different buildings that were there, and, and I don't see my mom and dad. And uh, they, were right, they were right there. And I, I have no idea what's going on. Like, I, I, I was just out having fun. And what I didn't know was the entire time I was being pushed, the, the, the waves in the ocean was pushing me down the shore. And I was like 300 yards, it wasn't crazy, and I made my way back, it was all fine, but like I was like 300 yards down the beach. I had no idea what was happening. And I think that's a description of our, our spiritual life sometimes. You know, it, it, that we, we go out and we get excited and, and we, we don't know all the dangers that are out there and we don't know exactly how to combat them, but we're excited and, and we, we take on, you know, and, and run as fast as we can and we don't stay grounded in God's word and we don't necessarily stay grounded with God's people. And what happens is before you know it, you've drifted way away from where you started. And you didn't even know it was happening. But one day, you look up, and you can't even really recognize where you're at or who you are. And does that describe you? When you talk about your service to the Lord and, you know, and, and, and your excitement for the Lord, is that more about the past or the present? Are you, are you living in the glory days of 20 years ago? Or, serve, or are you serving the Lord today? Have you drifted? If so, get your bearings and come back to the Lord today. So the enemy's subtle. It can happen without you knowing it. But listen, he's not only subtle, he's also evil. So second, you need to understand the significance of compromise. You have to understand the subtlety and it could happen without you even knowing it. 
one small decision at a time, but then you also need to understand the significance of compromise. And it was so significant in Nehemiah's eyes that it caused him to leave Babylon and come back to Jerusalem to deal with it. Look at verse 6. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king. And after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah and preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. You see, this is what, this is what bothered Nehemiah. I mean, of, of course, we're going to see that they dealt with all the intermarrying and all that. But when Nehemiah comes back, he's laser focused on this one issue. And he's laser focused on what Eliashib did and what was happening in the temple of God. And, and listen, this is the significance of it. Nehemiah understood of the evil that Eliashib did. And, and I just want you to know, and you need to understand, that compromise with the world is evil. It is evil. And that's a very strong biblical word. And, and the truth is, we don't view, most of us don't view our compromise that way. And that just goes back to the last point. It's because of the subtlety of it. But most of us, I mean, we consider ourselves, you know, pretty good people. You know, we're not, most of us aren't out, you know, breaking a bunch of laws and engaging in criminal activity and whatnot. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe a few of you are, uh, hopefully not, but, but not most. But any compromise with the world is evil. In God's eyes, James 4.4 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And I know, I know what you're thinking. You're like, well, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not a friend of the world. I mean, I'm, I may be friendly at times, but I'm not a friend of the world. That's too far. Well, well let me ask you this. Do you... Do you think carnally sometimes? Uh, listen, we all do, uh, that, myself included. Well, unfortunately, it's evil. Romans 8, verses 6 through 8 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, you still might not be fully with me on this. You might not fully believe me because I'm, I'm, I want you to know how significant this is, how strong this is, how evil this is. And, you know, and maybe you're thinking I'm making too much of this and, and maybe I am. But before we decide, let me show you what this story in Nehemiah prefigures because there's an important picture here. You see, there's a doctrinal or a prophetic application to this passage that we need to understand and I, I believe will shed some light on the significance of compromise. And it starts in verse one. And if you've been through our How to Study the Bible class in MTT, you might have caught a key phrase at the very beginning of this chapter. And by the way, if you haven't been through our MTT class and you've been through Discipleship One, you can sign up for our MTT class even, even now. You can get your application when you leave today. Uh, just see, you know, Chris and, and, and Mark at the, at the information desk. Get that into us. I think it's due like August 21st or whatever. No pressure, but you should do that. Um, but you'll learn these things in there because verse 1, Nehemiah 13.1 says, on that day, Okay. Three very simple words, but there's a, there's a key phrase in there, and that key phrase is that day. 
And that day in the Bible points to something big, and it points to the soon coming 1,000-year day of the Lord known as the millennium. It starts at his second coming when he physically returns to this earth, and it goes through the entirety of that 1,000-year millennium. And if you go back and you read verses 1 through 3 of Nehemiah 13, you'll find what happens is that the word of God is read and the people respond. They do what it says, and we'll, we'll get there. But by and large, that will be the response of the people in the millennium. It's a, it will be a golden era of obedience to the Lord. Not perfect, but, but certainly better than today. And then we see another clue, beginning in verse 4. Look at how verse 4 starts. And before this, okay, so we have a, we have a picture going on here. We have a, a prophetic application pointing to the millennium. And it says, and before this, so, you know, a good Bible study student would ask him or herself, what is before? What is before this? What is before that day? What is before the day of the Lord and the second coming and the millennium? And what is before is the tribulation, that time of judgment against Israel. And there's a key phrase in the Bible that points to this time of tribulation as well. And that phrase is those days. Well, look at how Nehemiah 13, 15 begins, because this text, this chapter, gives us more clues. Nehemiah 13, 15 begins with, in those days. Now look at the beginning of verse 23. It says, in those days. You see, the time before that day is those days. The time before the second coming is the tribulation. And what happens in the middle of the tribulation, in an event called the abomination of desolation. This is when the Antichrist comes in and takes up residence in the temple. It's prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, and as Jesus talks about it himself in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, it says, when you therefore shall, be the, shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we won't take the time to go there, but you can see that in Daniel chapter 9. When you see this happen, you see him stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Okay, that's the Antichrist sitting in the temple. That's the abomination of desolation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaking of the Antichrist, verses 3 and 4 says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Look at verse 4. Who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see, what happened historically in the book of Nehemiah is a picture of what is sure to happen in the tribulation. Because no, Tobiah is a picture of the Antichrist sitting in the temple. And the leaders of Israel let him in. And it's evil. And when you let the world into your life and into your home, and we let the world into this church, guess what? That is evil too. And it is, this is how significant it is. It's the spirit of Antichrist. That's how significant this is. What you're playing with. It's the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 4, 3 says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now 
Already is it in the world. And back to 2 Thessalonians 2.7, talking about one of the seven mysteries, the mystery of iniquity, the, that spirit of Antichrist that works through the religious system of today. It says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. This is a significant thing. And so you have to understand that picture to really grasp the gravity of what, what Nehemiah, what God is trying to tell us through Nehemiah, that this intermingling, this event of letting the world into the church is so significant and it's so evil. But listen, there's an answer. And that's our third point, which is the solution to compromise. Now we see the solution in verses 8 and 9. We're also going to go back to the beginning of the chapter. We'll, we'll see it there as well. But let's see what Nehemiah did. Look at verse 8. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. And we're going to look in more detail even next week at, at, at really some of what he did. But I want you to show you something very generally this morning. Because there's a, there's a solution we find in these verses to this, this crisis of compromise. And it's threefold. And, and, and this is it. This is, listen, this is not brain surgery. This is Bible 101. But it works every single time if you just do it. And here's where it starts. First, there needs to be a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. There needs to be a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And I say that because the compromise of the children of Israel, and specifically of Eliashib, it grieved Nehemiah. And listen, words matter. Our Bible's perfect. Everything matters. It grieved him sore, and it hurt him to see what had happened since he left. It grieved him sore. And let me ask you, when you sin against the Lord, when you allow compromise into your life, does it hurt you too? Are you sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Because listen, if when you sin, you are not grieved, then the Holy Spirit is. The Bible tells us not to do that. Nehemiah was grieved. And, and, you know, and Nehemiah is a picture here as well. Um, you know, Nehemiah comes and we're going to see what he does through, through the rest of this. But he comes and he, he, he kicks him out, right? Jesus Christ will ultimately do that. When he plants his feet in Mount Olive and splits it at the second coming, he ultimately casts the Antichrist out. And so listen, we should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in our life. The Bible tells us not to do that. Ephesians 4 verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. Listen, when sin happens... Someone is grieved. It's either you or the Holy Spirit. Which is it in your life? Someone's grieved. Sin grieves God. But if you allow it to grieve yourself, then you can fix it and it doesn't have to grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul warns us earlier in the same chapter of Ephesians chapter 4 how it can happen and how to avoid it. Verse 17, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. He's like, don't do that. Don't give yourself over like those Gentiles do and to the point to where you're past feeling. You don't even feel it anymore. 
and your heart has been blinded, and compromise is always a heart issue, and it's always a, blind, a blindness issue. So don't have your heart, don't have your minds blinded by the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us he's trying to blind the minds of, of us. Because listen, if you do that, after time, you won't feel the Holy Spirit's prodding any longer. You know, Paul warns Timothy about those whose conscience has been seared with a hot iron. It's like it becomes past feeling. And when you do that, you grieve him. And if you're not careful, you'll quench him to the point that he, he doesn't even work in your life. And then your life is like a lost man. You're saved, yet so as by fire, if you were truly saved. Praise the Lord for eternal security. But your life looks no different than a lost man's life. Don't let that happen. And it can so fast before you know it. So so stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And then next, have the strength to change. Look at what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah pulls a Jesus before Jesus and starts throwing junk out of the temple. And the fact is, it's, it's not enough to know you need to change. You actually have to take the steps necessary to change. And it's a replacement project. You have to throw out the junk in your life and replace it with the things of God. That's what Nehemiah did. He brought back in all of, that, all of those offerings. He had to replace it with the things of God. That means spending time in his word. That means listening to his spirit and spending time here with us in ministry. That's how you get out of it. It's not from going to the world for help. I can't emphasize that enough. And listen, I, I'm harping on something here, and I don't, I don't necessarily care if you read other books, but I do care if you read them at the expense of reading his word. And I do care if you are listening to and trusting in those books more than you are listening to and trusting in this book. And, and that defines a lot of Christianity today. And the stuff that amazes them is, 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 doesn't come from here. It comes from the bestsellers list. Man, no, this is the answer. It has it all. This is how you get out of it. You listen to this book and you change and you take courage and you trust him. And even if you're weak, that's okay. His, he has the strength you need. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So use his strength and change. And then third, this is the final step to the solution. It's submission to the word. I told you this wasn't brain surgery. It's Christianity 101. But it is the answer, and it's the only one. Ultimately, this is how you stay on the right side of compromise. You continually and consistently submit yourself to what the word of God says. And this point actually goes back to verse 1. But, but I believe, and this gets back to where I was kind of in the introduction, I believe that chronologically this is in the perfect order because verses 1 through 3, they start with on that day, right? And I showed you what that means doctrinally. But historically, I think that day was the day that Nehemiah came in and kicked Tobiah out of the temple. That's the day I, I believe it was. And I, I won't die on that hill, but... That's what I believe, because again, when we get to verse 4, it says before this, all this stuff happened. And now they're responding to God's word, which they weren't before. 
So again, some people connect it to chapter 12 and the dedication day. I don't think that's right. I think it connects to verses 8 and 9. But anyway, what did they do on that day? They read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them. He should curse them, howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass, when they heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And at the end of the day, it's really just that simple. When they heard the law, they obeyed the law. They submitted themselves to it. And really, success or failure in your Christian life comes down to just that. Are you going to do what this book says? Or are you going to try to do it your own way? Or try to do it the world's way? Or your favorite celebrity Christian author's way? And you even see the formula for how you are to interact with God's word. And when you use this formula, it works. I put it there. You don't even have to fill in the blanks. I put it on your outline sheet. It's read, research, and respond. You see in verse 1, they read in the book of Moses. That's where it starts. You got to open this book. And you got to get into it. And look, it says, they found written. They found written that the Ammonite and the Boamite should not come into the congregation of God forever. That's Deuteronomy 23, right? We read that earlier. That's what they found. So they were reading. They did a little bit of research. And they found some truth that applied to their situation. So they were in a very specific situation. They found the verses that dealt with that very specific situation. So they had to do a little research. They didn't just open the Bible and start reading. They found it. And then what they do? They responded biblically. They separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. They did what it said. Read, research, respond. Read, research, respond. Read, research, respond. Say it with me. Read, research, respond. That's all it is. It's that simple. Will you spend time in God's word? Will you open it up? Will you find what it is that you're dealing with, the area that you're being attacked? Will you do a little bit of research? There's plenty of tools out there that'll help you. A little bit of research to see what God's word has to say about it. And then will you do it? That's all it takes. You don't need anything else. You got 66 counselors right here and they're the best in the world. Nothing better. All the answers, all of them. But you gotta keep doing it because every day compromise is calling. And we know from history that Israel does not keep doing it. Not even 30 years after Nehemiah chapter 13, Israel's nowhere to be found. Even to the point that God goes silent with them. No more prophets, no more instruction. He was silent for 400 years until Jesus shows up as a baby to save them from their sins. And listen, that's just how much God loves. Even in their apathy, God didn't quit on them. And he doesn't quit on us either. Compromise is evil. But man, as long as you're willing to read, research, and respond, as long as you're willing to stay sensitive to Holy Spirit, have the strength to change, and submit to what this book says, then you got a chance. You got a chance. But you must understand the subtlety of compromise. None of us are immune, not even the high priests, even me. Even if you're serving God now, that doesn't guarantee tomorrow. You also need to understand the significance of compromise. It's evil. God compares it 
and picture to the work of the Antichrist. So don't blow it off. Don't think it's not that bad. And then apply the solution. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Don't quench him. Have the strength to stand up and get right with him. And get rid of what you need to get rid of and bring in the things that you need to bring in. And then submit yourself to his word. Read it, research, respond to it. God has provided a way of success, a way of escape. But you have to use his formula. You don't get to pick the, the way your own. So let's start doing things his way. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as you're settling your heart and settling your mind now, will you, will you take this time and, and just consider all that God has shown you through his word? I hope he did show you something today. And honestly, just evaluate. This is a time of evaluation, a time to ask yourself if you're living a life of compromise. Have you made room, made a room for the world in your life and in your home? And if so, will you apply the solution? Will you get with him either at this altar, there in your pew, whatever it is, and just take the time to repent of your sins and apply the solution that we saw this morning? You know, we're going to sing a song about him being the king of our heart. And you should ask yourself if that's true. Uh, is that true in your life? Does he hold that position? Is he on the throne of your heart or, or are you? And if it's you, will you step down and, and, and so that he can step on? And if you don't know the Lord is your Savior this morning, if, if you don't know if you died today, like where you would spend eternity, you can know that today. You can get that settled even today. And all it takes is by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you have any questions about what that means, uh, man, come up and see me. You can come up during the song or whatever. and love to show you in the Bible what it says on how to be saved today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful um, again for your word and, and, and the pictures in it, the beauty in it, and, and just um, how it gives us everything we need and the perfect direction for our life to solve the problems that we, we walk into all the time. And, and listen, it's all of us. It's not, man, it, it's me too. I'm not, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anybody else. But Lord, we just need your word. That's all we need. We need to be sensitive to your spirit and the strength to, to make the changes that we need to make. And Lord, it'll work. Your word works every time. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, that they will get saved today. That today will be the day of salvation for them. And they will accept you into their heart and into their life uh, for eternal salvation. Lord, we love you. We praise you for all you do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.